0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Jan Westerhoff about Chandrakirti's Introduction to the Middle Way, published by University Press in 2024 as part of the Oxford Guides to Philosophy series. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Jan.
2: Thank you very much, Malcolm, and thank you for having me. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's a pleasure. Let's, let's dive in. Your book is... I just said is a guide to chandra kirti's introduction to the middle way or the manjomaka avatara can you start with the motivation for writing this guide why this person and why this text
2: hmm. Sure. Well, perhaps I should first explain a little bit that this book is part of a series with Oxford University Press, and the series is called Oxford Guides. And what the series is supposed to do is give students, so it's a a series aimed at students, it gives students reading classic philosophical texts some guidance while reading the text or something to read alongside the text to explain. Uh, Most of the volumes in this series um, cover classical canonical text from the Western tradition, but um, there is also at least one other non-Western one which has already come out with this uh, Matthew Dusty's commentary on Vatsyayana's commentary on the Nyaya Sutra. Um, So the the whole series tries to have a somewhat global coverage. Now, for the specific uh, text I'm covering there, so Chandrakirti's introduction to the Middle Way, um, there are various reasons why... I wanted to include that specific text. On the one hand, it is really already composed by Chandrakiti as an introductory text. So it is an introduction into one of the key streams of Indian Buddhist philosophy, namely Madhyamaka. And it sets out the discussion in a very nice and systematic way, while also covering quite a lot of ground. So, to that extent, um, it's a fairly good text to become acquainted with Madhyamaka. But in addition to that, this text was also extremely influential in the development of Buddhist philosophy, in particular in the development of Buddhist philosophy in Tibet, because um, quite quite a bit of the discussion of the Tibetan philosophical discussion about Madhyamika can be understood in terms of different interpretations and different reactions to this text. So it has both a a systematic component in giving the students a really good overview about basic ideas in Madhyamika, but it also has an interesting historical component teaching them about uh, uh, important episodes within the history of the development of Buddhist philosophy.
1: Wonderful. We'll talk about some of those interpretations, Tibetan interpretations and things as we go along. But first, can we back up and ask how you got interested in Chandrakirti's work? Buddhism is a vast subject area. Why? How did you get to, to Chandrakirti's text?
2: Well, um, my interest in Buddhist philosophy started and is still very much centered around uh, Madhyamaka, um, which is one of the Um, main schools, or two main schools of Mahayana Buddhist philosophy, and um, uh, Madhyamaka philosophy proper started with uh, Nagarjuna, usually regarded as the founder of that school, who was a first or second century Indian Buddhist scholar and philosopher. Um, of course, Nagarjuna himself draws on earlier material, in particular, the, the Perfection of Wisdom or Paranya paramita Sutras. Some of the listeners might be familiar with the Heart Sutra, which is a short version of, of, of uh, the, these texts. And so Nagarjuna is fundamentally trying to spell out the philosophical vision of these Pranyaparamita texts, which, of course, he equates with um, the philosophical vision of the Buddha himself. Now, amongst interpreted or com- interpreters or commentators on Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti is, has particular prominence. Um, m- much of that is, of course, due to his prominence in Tibet. Um, and, of, and given that much of the, what we read in in the Western context about Madhyamaka is uh, comes via the Tibetan tradition, Chandrakirti f- features very very prominently in it. But having said that, uh, Chandrakirti is also uh, um, systematically a very interesting commentator on Nagarjuna, and. Um, uh, uh, brings brings out specific uh, ways of um, reading his philosophy, which have considerable systematic merit. so it's an it, it really is an a text that is interesting in an all-around manner, both in terms of its significance within the tradition but also as, as just very a very interesting piece of philosophy.
1: yeah, you've mentioned Tibet a few times so maybe we should talk about that a little bit for for the listeners. Um, so when we're thinking about, Buddhism, this is a, a guide to philosophy looking at sort of can- canonical texts. Um, is Indian Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, do they have a the same canon? How should listeners understand the relationship between what you're calling Tibetan Buddhism and Indian Buddhism, especially when we think about Chandra Kirti and his role? Uh, in a...
2: Right. So the, the Tibetans took it upon themselves to import the whole of indian buddhism at uh, indian scholastic buddhism at the time into tibet and translate all of the indian materials they could get hold of into tibetan and uh, uh um incorporated in that into their intellectual and 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 philosophical and religious tradition um and f- from from the tibetan perspective the, the indian buddhism is the is the role model and the gold standard of, of philosophical sophistication which they are trying to develop. Which is, of course, not to say that the Tibetans were merely sort of copyists or annotators and so on. I mean, they they developed their own ideas and and within more than a thousand history of, of uh, Buddhist Tibetan philosophical history, they developed very interesting forms of interpretations and ways of reading the, the uh, um, Tibetan material which um, um, Indians probably would have found quite intriguing and certainly new. So, to that extent, um, uh, the, the Tibetan intellectual tradition is very, very firmly rooted within Indian Buddhism, but um, it builds on that and develops its own its own take on Buddhist philosophical ideas and, their, and, and its own emphasis in in, in developing these materials.
1: Great. Right. So, so Chandra Kirti, then let's go back to him. And you mentioned that he is within the Mahayana tradition and he is a Majamaka. Uh, can you unpack that a little bit for listeners who who may not know what Mahayana means, what Majamaka means?
2: Sure. Um, we find uh, um, one, one of the main divisions of, of the uh, Buddhist tradition is into the schools of early Buddhism, sometimes also uh, described as the Shravakayana, um, and the Mahayana, the so-called Great Vehicle. The Mahayana is an uh, is is an intellectual and philosophical movement which started probably around the beginning of the Common Era. Um, And which has a number of uh, distinctive features, one of which is the prominence of the notion of the of the Bodhisattva, the the practitioner who tries to um, uh, become a fully enlightened Buddha for the and and then also promote the enlightenment of all other beings. So this is a very prominent idea here. And um, So within this um, Mahayana form of Buddhism, we find uh, mainly two which we might describe as intellectual schools or distinct intellectual approaches. One is um, yoga Chara, usually regarded as a form of Buddhist idealism. And the other one, the older one, in fact, is um, uh, Madhyamaka. So, as I said a minute ago, Madhyamaka goes back to Nagarjuna, first to second century of the Common Era. Um, Chandra, with Chandrakiti, we are moving here to the seventh century of the Common Era, right? So we have about 500 to 600 years between Nagarjuna, the founder of the school, and then uh, Chandrakirti as a commentator. So quite a bit of, of scholastic development between those parts as well. Um, what is uh, really, really important for the Madhyamaka school is the central notion of the theory of emptiness so the buddha um, uh, described reality as having three fundamental and universal characteristics namely everything is existentially unsatisfactory or suffering everything is is impermanent and everything is without a self and this notion of the absence of a self or Uh, Selflessness um, uh, becomes uh, developed within the Madhyamaka tradition into a universal theory of emptiness, which doesn't just say that persons are, uh, are empty and insubstantial, but it extends this notion of selflessness or emptiness or insubstantiality to all phenomena, to all dharmas. Uh, and this fundamental, all-encompassing theory of emptiness um, is already prefigured to a certain extent in the perfection of wisdom sutras, in the Prajnaparamita texts. Um, but it then gets philosophically developed, first of all in Nagarjuna and his works, and then also in later um, works that comment on Nagarjuna, such as Chandakirti. So the 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 the, the key notion that that is discussed in various ways and form or within this text, the introduction of the middle way really is the notion of emptiness, both when it comes to the emptiness of the self or the emptiness of the person and also the emptiness of all phenomena.
1: And so so listeners shouldn't think that this idea of emptiness that Nagarjuna and then later Chandrakirti is taking up represents all of Buddhism everywhere, every time there's a... a particular innovation that's happening, how would you say?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't perhaps use the the term innovation so much insofar as these thinkers themselves wouldn't have considered their own work as innovation so it, it's not as in 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 western philosophy where we think you have you know thinkers like you know kant and wittgenstein who did something completely new and were very clear that they did something completely new and had original ideas and wanted to defend them and and, and uh, portray them to their to their audiences whereas w- within the the indian scholastic tradition, certainly um, what all of these um scholars um set out to do and, and thought they were doing was to to explicate and explain the original intent of the buddha's teachings now yeah. now that is not to say <laughs> of course that there is no development within buddhist thought um but i think what uh, perhaps a better way of thinking about it than instead in, in terms of innovation might be in terms of the development of specific ideas that were already present in potential form within the within the pali say, or the buddhist Buddha's original teachings so you can imagine that this like a, a sort of if you have the kind of wildflower meadow with lots of different seeds in it depending on the specific soil you have different flowers will sprout more strongly or more prominently than others and uh, i think we we can understand quite a bit of buddhist philosophical development by um, by taking into account that these different schools focused on specific ideas that we found, all find in the in, in the Buddha's own teaching, so they didn't didn't make up new things that they wanted to add there. But it's the emphasis and the development and what takes center stage and what is sort of pushed to, to the periphery that which um, uh, which makes the, the the difference between these different schools.
1: Right, that's helpful. Thank you. So. Emptiness is not a, a new idea, of course. It's mentioned and discussed earlier how how Nagarjuna and Chandra Kirti emphasize it and and talk about it. We might want to say it's new, but they would not say that. They would say this is there from the beginning. right? Um, so that kind of leads me to this question about what is different in... Um, Chandra Kirti and what is familiar this is this is a text about uh, philosophy uh the guide that is right and so i'm wondering what are some of the philosophical topics that chandra kirti takes up that people might recognize and what is new so emptiness sounds like a metaphysical discussion uh this mention of bodhisattvas might seem a little bit unusual what how do you think about this this question what's new and what's what's uh familiar
2: right so two very important um uh, topics that we find discussed in in the introduction to the to the middle way are the the emptiness of persons or subjects, and the emptiness of phenomena. So when we think about this in the categories of Western philosophical thoughts, we would say, well, one is perhaps the topic within the philosophy of personal identity, and the other one is really in metaphysics. Yeah. So those, those are central ideas. I mean, there are lots of other subsidiary topics to do with epistemology and ethics and so on that also come into this. But I think these two ide- these two claims in, with the, in concerning personal identity and metaphysics are really the key claims. So perhaps let me say just something briefly on both of those. So um, the, the notion of selflessness um, within Buddhism uh, is the idea that there is no fundamentally or ultimately real soul or atman that travels from life to life, or that even remains constant during, during one lifetime. Instead, what the, what the uh, person really is, is a rapidly changing aggregate of causally connected physical things or physical processes and, and psychological processes you now, the kind of stream of, 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 of these kinds of events. And, um, so part of the, the introduction of the middle way is a development and the defense and explication of this conception of a person against alternative conceptions. Yeah, so this is one, one important part. Um, the second important part, which I would classify more under metaphysics is the theory of emptiness of all phenomena, not just persons, but, but all phenomena straight, uh, all altogether, And, um, Chandrakirti has a uh, has, has quite an interesting way of of setting up this discussion because he um, focuses on uh, an examination of causation and argues that okay so if things existed in a substantially or fundamentally real manner then they would stand in specific causal relations with other things, and he distinguishes four different uh, causal relations in which they would stand. Either things would be caused by themselves, or they would be caused by things other than themselves, or they would be caused by both themselves and other things, or they would arise completely without any causes. So he's got these four different positions, and then he does something very interesting. So he, so he wants to, of course, refute each of these four views of causation um, in order to show that in the end there's nothing left. And we can we, we can thereby, by ruling out these four ways in which a substantially real entity could arise, we can also rule out that there are any substantial, substantially real entities, because there is no way in which it can arise. And chandrakirti does something very interesting because he connects each of these four positions with a specific Indian philosophical school of thought and um, arguing that each of these schools um, endorses one of these views about causation. So he does two things at the same time. So he um, Refutes a specific metaphysical conception, but he also refutes mm-hmm. uh, divergent philosophical views, and the, the the discussions that he 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 mentions here are first of all. Um, the the non-Buddhist Samkhya school, which he associates with self-causation, then the main Buddhist alternative Mahayana school Yoga Achara, which gets a very long discussion that's associated with uh, causation from other, and then the the final two positions get a somewhat shorter discussion. The third one discussing the uh, so, so, third one causation from itself and others. Is associated with Jainism, and the final one, uh, causation without a cause, so to speak, random arising, is associated with the ancient Indian materialists, the Chavakas. Yeah, so uh, Chandrakirti then discusses these all in detail, and uh, this this raises. Uh, interesting questions both in terms of the history of Indian philosophy you know so how accurate was his portrayal of these schools how to which extent would they themselves regard themselves as refuted by Chandrakirti's arguments and so on um but it also uh it, it also has in addition to this kind of polemical or doxographical dimension it also this whole discussion also has another dimension um insofar that Chandrakiti also believes that these different misunderstandings um, of the way causation works are also misunderstandings that the student of Madhyamaka is likely to see himself uh, trapped by or, or, or taken in by. So at the same time in which he say, refutes the, the Yogacharin or the samkhyas he also wants to refute Madhyamikas who hold ideas that are similar to these views. So it's not. It's this is not meant primarily as a as a polemical work, and it arguably might want to say it's not. Even though it looks like a polemical work or a doxographic work in that case, it's not intended at that at all. Because Kitty actually says in the text itself that this discussion. So the 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 the. the uh, introduction to the middle way is not composed out of desire for debate, right? So he says, okay, so this is not, the the claim is not here to refute other schools. But then of course you ask yourself, okay, so what's the point? (laughs) Why, Why do you refute all these other schools? And the answer presumably is that um the, the the yogachara view or the or the samkhya view and so on they stand in for specific misunderstandings of the way causation could work which keeps you from understanding the notion of emptiness properly and so by working through these kinds of rival views and seeing their flaws the uh the, the student of Mariamaka can then also advance to a more sophisticated view of what the theory of emptiness actually means
1: right and i think
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: What you're describing there picks up on something that I didn't ask you about, which is the structure of the text and the relationship with the bodhisattva stages. Because if I'm hearing you right, one thing that seems a little different from how uh, Chandrakirti is laying things out, even though he's doing what a lot of modern philosophers do, think about the conceptual space, identify competing views, and so on. This is all in the service of a goal for practitioners of buddhism and others who are trying to achieve some sort of soteriological ethical sort of telos here um, could you speak to that a little bit maybe talk about the structure of the text too along the way
2: yes yes of course so another interesting feature of this text is that it is at the same time um an introduction to madhyamaka but also um um a mapping out of the entire buddhist path and this arguably this might be one of the reasons why the tibetans were, were, were so interested in this text because it also pr- uh, provides you with kind of an outline of the development of the career of a bodhisattva from the beginning up to perfect buddhahood and so the the, the kind of um, structural template that uh, chandra kirti adopts in order to structure his text is um the, the so-called ten bodhisattva bhumis or bodhisattva stages, um which are described in, in, in great detail in a, in a Mahayana sutra called the Dasha Bhumika Sutra, the Sutra on the Ten Stages. Um and uh, Chandrakirti um divides his text into these ten sections, first of all, to connect it with, with these first with, with these. Ten stages. So the stages. What, what differentiates the stages um, are the kind of insight the bodhisattva acquires in these stages, and also their different kinds of abilities in in helping beings that 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 are caused by that. Now, um, what is important to notice also about the text is that its structure is in a way um, uh, somewhat unbalanced insofar as the, the the length of the treatment of the different stages is 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 very um uh, uh, very unequal so uh chandra kitty spends the majority of the text far more than half on the sixth stage uh the sixth bodhisattva stage the, the famous uh sixth chapter and and basically everything i've been talking about so far is in this sixth chapter um, now, this uh, um, the, the Sanskrit name of this uh, sixth stage is Abhimuki, um, which can be translated as directly facing or directly in front or turned towards or something like that. And what the bodhisattva turns towards in this at this stage is the realization of emptiness. Right. So this is why all this discussion of emptiness and different forms of emptiness and so on is given within this particular stage, and um, so uh, Chandra lays this all out in this uh, discussion of these ten stages, with a long sort of long discussion of the sixth stage, and then he finishes it off with the final section and eleventh section um, with a discussion of the of the fully enlightened state of Buddhahood and different different properties of the Buddha and uh, uh, the, the quality of the qualities of the enlightened mind and so on. So um, uh, so to that extent, within the within the um, uh uh introduction to the middle way, we can we can follow the entire trajectory of the bodhisattva from the first stage, with this connected, of course, with a direct insight into emptiness. So, this is where it, where it all starts for the bodhisattva. Then he it works his way all the way up to the 10 stages and then beyond the 10th stage up to the stage of fully enlightened Buddha. Yeah, so that, that's it's perfectly right. To that extent, um it is um uh um, quite different from Western, Western philosophical text. It, it doesn't just start out with, okay, here's the basic idea, the argument, but it actually develops a kind of sociological path of which the philosophy forms a part. Yeah, It might also, at this stage, be, be worthwhile to, to say a little bit about the, the form of the text itself, because that might not be familiar to the listeners. So, like most um, Indian philosophical texts of um, this form. The the text itself is actually written in verse, which um, facilitates memorization. Um, And um, then Chandrakirti wrote his own prose auto commentary to that text, or composed his own auto commentary on that text, um, uh, which uh, explains the material, which is, is very, very condensed within the uh, within the verses themselves, in in a more complete form. Huh? And um, uh, so the, the exposition that I'm giving in this guide is uh, uh, more or less exclusively, on the basis of the material that Chandrakirti presents in the verses and the auto-commentary. There is, of course, a lot of subsequent discussions on later commentaries on the text and specific works on that text, which, um, uh, however, form really part of the reception of the text. And given that this is a one-volume student commentary and not a multi-volume project, um, I'm focusing very much on a sort of an imminent a uh, uh, reading of the text which which focuses on 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 Chandrakirti and his own commentary rather than on what later perspectives on the text might tell us Great.
1: let me pick up on another theme that might be interesting to listeners and i think is important in in this discussion so um so far we've been talking about Chandrakirti's arguments and his views as if it there there is just a question of whether they're true or false um, but, of course, there's a distinction between conventional and ultimate truth that is important in the text. Um, and you talk about how we can't know ultimate truth or even express it. It's ineffable for Chandra Kirti. So I'm curious, can you unpack a little bit about what this distinction is between conventional and ultimate truth for Chandra Kirti? Uh, and then how does his view, his his claims, how do they fit in here? Um, is his view not um, something that is ultimately true H- how do we make sense out of that
2: right yeah if you can <laughs> yeah sure sure I mean the distinction between the between the two truths is one of the the most important or widespread hermeneutical devices within Buddhist philosophy and um, to to put it very briefly the distinction between the two types of truth is the distinction between the way, the world looks to us within the context of everyday reality that's the conventional truth and then the way reality looks from the perspective of a fully enlightened buddha now now what characterizes conventional truth is that it is the perspective in which we operate and at which the perspective from which pragmatic truth and functionality um um are Important. Um, it is, however, the, the perspective of beings who are trapped in samsara, in cyclic existence. So it's not the perspective of an of, of a fully enlightened Buddha. Huh? Um, and ultimate truth, the view of the things in terms of that perspective of a fully enlightened Buddha, is of course the goal that we want to achieve, or the or the, or the Buddhist practitioner wants to achieve by working through these bodhisattva stages. Now. Um, the How exactly to characterize um, ultimate truth is, of course, an, an extremely complex question within Buddhist philosophy, um, especially given the fact that language and concepts and everything that goes with it is very much located at the level of conventional truth. So the idea to which we can actually get, an, get a conceptual framing of something which is beyond conceptual framing is quite complex and um i mean this brings us of course in, into into one of the key uh uh key um problems of interpreting uh, chandrakirti's madhyamaka and um that is the question of um what 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 precisely he takes to be ultimate truth or the or the or the, or the buddha's perspective on the world be and how that influences uh also his philosophical methodology yeah so um uh Chandrakirti's Madhyamaka is usually within the Tibetan tradition read as being the the, um, main source for the understanding of of a form of Madhyamaka, which is called called Prasangika Madhyamaka. Now, what exactly characterizes Prasangika and makes it different from different forms of Madhyamaka is a complex issue. But I think in this context here, um, we can focus on the fact that from a, a Prasangika Madhyamika perspective, the, the philosophical aim is not to produce a philosophical theory such that we could then say, okay, so after we've argued for this theory and refuted all objections, we now have a theory that is ultimately true, right? Rather, what the, the, the Prasangika Madhyamika is trying to do is saying, okay, so uh, beings who believe in substantially real objects or substantially real selves, um, um, of course, have a problem because they are trapped in cyclic existence because of these mistaken beliefs. So what the Madhyamaka is doing is whenever somebody comes up with a theory that seems to imply the existence of a substantially real self, of an Atman or substantially real Phenomena, so things that are not empty, then the Madhyamaka will present him with some arguments that show that these views are actually contradictory. Yeah? And he will then, because contradictions are a bad thing, the opponent will then be forced to give up those views. Yeah? What the Madhyamaka then doesn't do is then produce an alternative theory, right? They rather they take it on a case by case basis and Try to refute this idea of a substantial existence or svabhava um, in every form in which it arises. Um, without, however, thereby formulating a philosophical theory that is an ultimately true, that can be regarded as ultimately true. Yeah, and I mean that, that connects interestingly with with another sort of complex exegetical. Questions connected with this text, um, which is the question of how reality actually looks like from the Buddha's perspective, and um, that raises the, the the interesting question, which is which is then dis- debated quite a bit also within the, within the Tibetan exegetical tradition, to which extent Chandrakirti believes that Buddhas actually have mental states at all. Right, or whether there is nothing that it's like to be from the perspective of a Buddha. Now, this is this is quite quite an intriguing um, conception. I mean, how could we make sense even of the idea that it, there's nothing that it's like to be a Buddha? Well, the um, one way in in which you could play that is by saying, look, this this whole idea of the existence of the Buddha or the the buddha's activity and the buddha's teaching and so on are really projections by the minds of the practitioners or the beings who are still in conventional reality, right? But there is nothing that it's like from the other side, there's nothing that it's like from, from, from the perspective of ultimate reality. So to that extent, you can see that the, the, the distinction between ultimate reality and conventional reality um, connects with a lot of different philosophical facets of Madhyamaka, it connects with obviously with metaphysical questions, it connects with questions of philosophical methodology, you know, what kind of logic and what kinds of form of reasoning should we actually use and argue for these theories? And it also connects with the the question of what the soteriological ideal that we are trying to achieve there actually is. Is it some kind of um, superior mental state that is completely uh, free from suffering and delusion and so on, but is still... A mental state that you know has something that it's like to be in that state, or is it something that is very different and isn't a state at all?
1: There's there's quite a quite a lot in there. I'm I'm, I'm thinking now about the uh, mention that you had in the introduction of Taranatha's account of a de- of the debate between Majamaka and Yoga Charans, uh, uh, Chandra Kirti and Chandra Goman, right? Um, and I'm curious here. Here we have two two traditions, two representatives of two traditions that are that are in opposition. Certainly at the level of conventional truth, but I'm wondering, in light of what you've just said, given um, the goals of Buddhism, um, sort of Buddhist practitioners, uh, and how we cannot characterize ultimate truth, what what you think? This is a little little outside of the realm of your your book, but what you think Buddhist practitioners how they understood this debate. So this debate that all this time that Chandra Kirti is is engaging in, right, and criticizing Yogacara for these, these purposes, um, how how were sort of other Buddhist practitioners understanding it? Was this what was the point of this? If at the at the end of the day, in some sense, as Taranatha's account maybe suggests, as as you say, um, it's undecided whether the Majamaka or the Yoga is sort of victorious. There's something maybe beyond that debate.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's that's an interesting question. Of course, one one thing to to take into account is that um, uh, Chandogya's refutation of of uh, Yoga in this text is. Uh, perhaps not best to be understood as a sort of a, a wholesale rejection of that tradition, that would also be very difficult for Chandrakirti to do because the um, the Yogacara idea is, or the Yogacara thesis are very uh, explicitly based in important Mahayana Sutras, which make these philosophical claims like everything is mind only and so on. Interestingly enough, also the Dashabhumika Sutra itself, which is the very structural model that Chandrakiti uses to structure his own text, makes these kinds of claims. So to that extent, um, uh, 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 Chandrakiti is certainly not saying that uh, Yogacara should be rejected from start to finish and it's a kind of a heretical interpretation of the buddhist teaching and so on what what he is concerned with is that um uh yogacara is considered to be more than it could really be and be namely being the ultimate and final teaching of the buddha right rather he regards the yogacara teaching as something which is useful to specific practitioners in order to speak, to get them to the next stage. I mean, this is a fairly fairly familiar trope that we find in, in Indian doxographies more generally, that when you criticize other theories, you don't say, okay, well, they were all wrong. It needs to be all rejected. But you usually say, okay, well, they are mostly wrong, but there are also some right things about it. And the right things can be regarded at first step to my position, which is the final right position, right? And so uh, Chandra Kitty also says, look, Yogachara has an important point, um, when the Yogacalans say everything is, is mind only, what the Buddha meant by that is to reject other generating principles of the world. So, for example, you could imagine that you have an opponent who says, you know, everything in the world is created by a creator god, Ishvara, you know, something, something like that. Um, and then the Yogacalans comes in with their principles and says, no, everything is mind mind created and mind made. And. Um, And so he he can, if successful, then he can refute this, uh, um, this opposing non-Buddhist idea that that the world is the the product of a creator God. Um, But the important point then from Chandrakirti's perspective is not to get stuck on the Yogacara perspective that then says, okay, well, therefore mind is ultimately real, right? No, he says, look, you also have to realize that once you um, churn Yogacara through the Madhyamaka analytical framework, you also realize that mind isn't substantially real either. That is doesn't doesn't exist with svabhava either, right? So from the from the perspective of chandrakirti, yoga Chara is a kind of a propedeutic or, or or introductory step on the way towards a more sophisticated philosophical understanding of the Buddha's teachings.
1: And so we wouldn't want to then say, well, maybe maybe the world is uh, in the mind of a of a god, and uh, <laughs> as a sort of. Uh, further further step that would be to to endorse a Svobaba or a reification or substantial uh nature. That would be out of bounds as well, I would hmm. imagine. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good. Okay. So um let's go back then in the time that we have to the the debate about how to have debates. Um you mentioned this a little bit, the discussion of Switfrantika and uh, Prasangika that is picked up in um, Tibetan doxography later. Um, I'm just curious, um, in terms of Chandra Kirti's goals, you say he's 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 aiming to not have a debate, right? He says this in the outset of, of the book, but in some sense, how to debate is a major theme in the text. Um, I guess I'm I'm wondering how you're understanding the relationship between the kind of internal debates that we might have with ourselves and the kind of external debates that Buddhists were having at the time uh, with with other um, with other thinkers. Is there a sense of um, those external debates and internal debates having the same kind of ethical and soteriological aims that you're you're really intending to um, be compassionate towards your debater in some sense, uh, in a right right approach to debate, um, that the right sort of approach to debate or a useful approach to debate would be really to um, engage in a kind of vitanda, as uh, Nayakas would put it, a, only only criticizing your opponent, um, and that that should be what's happening inside of you. I'm just a little curious about the internal-external aspect of this here, because it's, it seems like there's two two modes of debate kind of going on
2: yeah. right yeah so I mean first of all I think when when Chandra Kitty says well this is this is uh, this text is not composed out of a desire for debate I think w- what he means by that is not that you shouldn't debate philosophical views that but that the point of that is not to then generate, unhelpful psychological states that you are trying to get rid of on the bodhisattva path, but not only this time now in, in relation to philosophical debates and whether you have attachment to your own view and aversion to the view of another, and then that you 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 are you've got the same problems that you had before, right? So I think this is the, the what he meant by not not out of a desire for debate. Um uh, yeah i think the, the the question you mentioned there is is a fairly complex one we certainly know that um debating and real debating with real opponents was a very very important um uh thing within the indian philosophical culture um certainly you know from the time of Chandrakirti onwards for for the next uh, um uh, centuries um where those debates were also um public and also came with fairly high stakes in terms of patronage and, and royal favors. Um, uh, um, uh, 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 David Eckel once once wrote somewhere and said that the debaters of ancient India were the kind of rock stars and sports idols of ancient India. So I don't know to which extent that is true. But what, what is certainly true about this characterization is that this was a kind of high stakes business, which was um, had, had important practical implications. And for, to that extent, it was important for each of the schools to be able to uh, defend their own views according to a set of debate rules that would be accepted by all parties, because otherwise you're kind of a debate, right? If you even don't even agree on the rules, yeah? so that is one one side of the whole debate business. But then there is also uh, a side of the debate business which is really the debate as part of the intellectual or spiritual practice that is endorsed in these, in these, in these manners. And you can, you can see that also in, in the later development in Tibet where debating if was and actually still is an essential part of monastic training and examination to, to study these materials, but it is also regarded as something which plays a role on the um, uh, spiritual path itself, and the way it does that is um, insofar as when you are um, studying these texts and try to try to figure out what the Madhyamika is actually saying, what the right interpretation of these teachings are, there are a variety of uh, theoretical options you can take. And some of these might be in the overall picture, more satisfactory than another or more true to the overall coherence of the system. And the only way you can figure that out is by pitching these different interpretations against each other in your own mind. Yeah, But then, of course, uh, it's um, to, to a certain extent, you know, it's like playing chess against yourself. There's only one winner. <laughs> But that is that is not the point. The point is rather to I- advance your own understanding to a level where you then realize what the most satisfactory way of reading these texts is. You know? So to that extent, th- there is an important uh, um, uh, connection between these outer forms of debate and the inner forms of debate. Um, however, what, what makes the whole issue particularly complex within the Madhyamaka context is that within these discussions, people then also um uh, raise the question of what kind of rules of debate are actually legitimate within or from the Madhyamaka perspective, right? Um so usually, and I mean this is this is quite unusual and we don't don't have that that much in the Western philosophical discussions. Usually when you have um uh, discussions between different philosophical views in the Western context, you then don't also have a discussion about what the ki- right rules of logic are for having that debate. I mean, sometimes you do, but not often. Whereas in the Madhyamaka case, this becomes very, very prominent because then you, you're not just dis- debating about the philosophy, you're also debating at the meta level of how you should have a discussion about the philosophy. And that makes the whole, whole uh, um, discussion particularly complex.
1: Yeah. Well, I have one last question picking up on on this theme of reading. Mm-hmm. This is a guidebook. Uh, And so you're, of course, hoping that people read Chandra Kirti's text, not just your guide, but you're also hoping that they'll read your guide. So maybe could you speak a little bit to how you hope students and uh, professors who are interested in in Chandra Kirti, how they read your work and how they read Chandra Kirti, what they might get out of this book, especially if maybe then they're going to go back uh, to Western traditions of philosophy. What, what, What might you think? That they could get from the book.
2: Well, yeah, you're perfectly right in saying this. This book is meant to be meant to be a companion volume, right? So it's not to be. You, of course, you can read it on your own. That I think you'll, it, it is is probably to that extent uh, self-contained. But of course, the whole point of a guide series is that you read the original text as well, and then use the guide in order to guide your understanding and 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 get get some kind of grip on the on what is said in the text itself, rather than to substitute it for the reading of the original material so i would uh, definitely recommend uh, for people to 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 study the original text itself i mean the the text is is it's quite an interesting time actually for for chandrakirti studies at the moment because um, but because until very recently it was assumed that the the sanskrit original of Chandrakiti's verses and the bhashya were lost and so all the work that has been done until very recently has been based on the tibetan translation of these texts um but now somewhat miraculously the the sanskrit originals have actually resurfaced and they uh the, so the the verses um and the, the bhashya are, are currently being edited parts of it are, have already been published of the parts of the verses that have already been published and also part of the commentary auto commentary. Um and so there is a um is a translation of the of the of the largest part of the verses, namely the, the sixth chapter, forthcoming, um, which is the first translation of that material which is actually based directly on the Sanskrit, which uh, is is being done currently by Mark Sideritz and Shoryo Katsura. Um uh, and so this is, I think, is going to be a, a reference translation, really, for the for the bulk of the text for for chapter six. Um, so, w- which is presumably people would want to read alongside the text. There are various other good uh, older translations as well, and I, I mentioned them in the text um, uh, that that readers can go to. Now, in terms of your specific question of what are they going to get out of this, right? I, well, I think it the the text links up with um, debates or or. or, or um, um uh, discussions within western philosophy um uh, concerning questions like um within metaphysics and a question of of um uh, substance foundationalism anti-foundationalism on the one hand and questions about personal identity on this and the self on the other so th- these are very two two very large themes and we we, we talked about them already um Uh, So to that extent, I think Chandrakirti presents uh, um, views here that are um, 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 interesting, unusual in the Western context and interesting also in their coherence with one another. And so I, I do hope that that. People who read this text in in a philosophical context, because this is this is a book which is meant primarily for philosophers, not primarily for indologists or Tibetologists or Buddhologists. So I do would hope that people who read philosophers who read these texts um, will also uh, read them, having these systematic debates within the Western philosophical context in mind, and try to understand one in term of the other, or at least try to understand them in a kind of comparative manner.
1: Great. Thank you. So I appreciate all of your time. Um, I don't want to keep you any longer, but last question, what are you working on right now that this book is, in, in, as we speak, about to be published?
2: Yeah. So I think what, what is probably particular um, a particular interest for your readers is um, another project on this very text by Kitty that I'm currently involved with um in, in in the team of four consisting um of uh, jay garfield um and uh, two tibetan scholars Sunam Takcho and tashi setting and, and myself and so we are uh, uh, currently writing a, a commentary on the text which is in a in a way goes far beyond what is covered in in, in this material and is much longer because it is focuses on the reception history of the text primarily in Tibet. So what we are going to look at there is how um commentators from different uh Philosophical schools within Tibet, so the Tsongkapa, Gorampa, Rendawa, Mipam, the Eighth Karmapa, and so on, who all read the text in slightly different ways, often had significant disagreements about what Chandrakirti was actually saying in these verses, how how these are to be related, and how they are to be related to the late to, to the larger discussion. Um, about Madhyamika that was happening in in Tibet. So I think this is that would be interesting uh, for readers who then want to see. Okay, so where, where are actually the philosophical consequences of the, of this material? And and uh, hopefully that uh, that will be laid out in 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 that book, which should be coming out in a couple of years.
1: Great. Well, we'll look forward to that, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk to you all about it then. Thanks for your time, Jan.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me, Malcolm.